I like to look at that old adage, if you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to teach others how to fish, then you feed the whole world. That's where I'm at now. I like to use that part as my personal mission in terms of teaching others. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Dr. Bob Schott. As a former Marine Recon Special Force, one of the U.S.'s most elite special forces, Bob recognized the importance of psychology and physiology early on, and leaning to innate curiosity to pursue two postdoctorates in clinical psychology and neuropsychology over the past few decades. He's the co-founder of Optimal Life Seminars and Optimal Life Institute, and the author of Mind Your Own Fitness and the forthcoming books Unleash the Champion Within and Self-Mastery for the Home-Based Entrepreneur. He is also the founder of MindHack Academy, formerly known as MindHackAcademy.tv. His articles and appearances could be found in numerous publications and media networks, such as Inner Success Radio, iHeart's Radio, School of Startup Radio, and more. Bob is also a grandmaster in martial arts, the highest honor given to senior instructors with five black belts and several fifth degrees. Then he utilized his expertise in psychology and his keen business insight to start a seven-figure marketing and advertising firm. After selling his company, Bob leaned into his curiosity once again and decided to dive into the executive coaching space through NLP, also known as Neuro Linguistic Programming and became a master NLP trainer after dedicating over 40 years to the coaching industry. He is a former founding member of Coachville, one of the most well-known personal coaching communities that became the new standard for modern coaching, and he specialized in rational emotional behavior therapy and EEG neurofeedback through EEG Institute. As someone who recently turned 70 years old, Bob's exceptional level of curiosity and his ever-expanding knowledge and almost fairy tale liked lived experiences are so inspiring for us and something we will love to continue to embody on our show. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That's interesting, fairy tale lifestyle. One of the things I learned throughout my life is that each, each one of us has our own path. And I think creating, each one of us can create that own fairy tale lifestyle. We, we, we get out there and and we see that our journey is ahead of us. And if we have a purpose or something we want to go after, and, and it's going to change. So when, when, when a person graduates from high school, you, you have one perspective. And, and a lot of times, it's the perspective of the adults around you, the, the, your primary caregiver and society and everything that, that tends to guide one through the path. Yet, as you get older and you start looking at different things and where you have started out may not be where you eventually go because you start opening up to, to possibilities from what happened early on. Now, me, I, I challenge myself throughout my life and, and I want to test, test the waters with different things, which is important. We don't know uh, what's going to be our right fit until we test different things out. We look at a lot of the uh, great thinkers and we can go back in history like Da Vinci. I mean, this guy was what I call the absolute polymath. He experimented in a lot of different areas from science to art to mechanical things. I mean, he was all over, yet he became brilliant in each area. He was able to, to create, he became an absolute creator. and. We are the creator of our own lives, yet we have to go inside and start dispelling the beliefs of others that have gotten inside of our head and messed with it and telling us to go in a certain 
direction, this or that. You know, the, the older generations, they tend to have followed a certain path. They may have worked in, in, a, in, in a factory, for example, or, or a certain company for their whole life. I think things have shifted in today's world. So I see younger people having multiple different careers as they experiment. Things are not, not like the way they used to be years ago as, as, as they are now. So I had a, a great opportunity throughout my life and I'm continually doing that. And I'm learning from people like both you, Benoit and, and Aiden, because you're in your 20s, you're still looking ahead in terms of, of your own path. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm older, yet I can still go after things that I have not done before. And it's so much more. I think I've only accomplished about that much, just a small percentage of, of where I really want to go. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, speaking of many different possibilities and speaking of your ability to test out different water, different lanes of truth, different lanes of lived experiences, the underlying message and the theme and the pillar that y'all pull so closely throughout your seven decades of lived life is curiosity. And that's 100% where we want to start this episode with is you talked about what drove you, right? That propelling force that kept driving you forward decade and decade and decade would enable you to dabble in many, many different aspects, right? And hearing about your introduction reminds me of Steve Jobs, the modern polymath, right? I just, I'm almost done with this biography by Walter Isaacson, and he is so iconic aside from his gifted brilliance, and he's definitely a genius on a spectrum, without a doubt, with the neurobiological deviancies, but it's also because of intersectional interest in liberal arts and technology. And of course, as we all know, he is one of the few people in the human history that was able to revolutionize personal computing, music, and animated movie industries all at once with your polymath-like interest and curiosity. So with that being said, Bob, um, I would love to for you to take us on a ride of your stories about why curiosity matters so, uh, so important for you. Because there is no flow state, there is no experimentation, there is no pivoting, there is no anything without curiosity at the centerpiece. Yes, absolutely. One of the things, going back to my early childhood, I was always had this innate curiosity of wanting to know how things work. And a lot of times it, it got me in, in, into trouble. I can, I can recall as a child wanting to know how electricity work, these, these outlets and everything like that. So I started experimenting on the outlets and I got zapped big time. It could have been worse, but yet that, that was just a part of that. I uh, started experimenting with uh, building like little rockets. So I had a chemistry set when I was young and I started mixing like different things and, and finding out how propellant works and everything. And I didn't get the mixtures, I had to experiment. So I think that was a big part of it. And eventually I got it right. But that's after a few explosions and everything that happened. Now, here's the thing about chemistry sets back in the old days, they had everything in there that they actually banned those kind of chemistry sets uh, in, in today's world. But you could do stuff in that. You can make bombs, you could do anything. I mean, it, it, it was crazy. So I got lucky in terms of that period of time. I got to experiment and everything. And I did it with other things. I wanted to know how things work. I was very curious on how things work. Again, I was always, always, always in that experimentation mode and, and ask questions and, and the curiosity was a big part of that and that journey continued later on especially regarding human behavior when i went into the marines and i was curious on how i could challenge myself to be better to to reach higher levels so i experimented there as well and a lot of people didn't really understand that they just basically followed do this do this do this while i did that how could i do it better within myself so I did that, and that enabled me to reach higher levels within the Marines. And the same thing after I got out of the Marine Corps, joined the LAPD, I did that. But after five years, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I ended up leaving in 1981. So that's been, what, 40 years now. And then later, I would discover 
um, NLP, my first dive in NLP was in my last year when I was with the um, LAPD. So Richard Bandler and John Grinder, the founders, uh, along with the, his whole inner circle of people, basically the people who actually were creating NLP um, as part of that. So went through some of that training. But the psychology still stayed with me. I've been, like, like you mentioned, I've been a martial artist. And since 18 months old, my mom was my first martial arts teacher, teaching me kendo. Then I lived in Okinawa for three years, learning um, goju. And then my uncle Keiji in Japan, um, he's a master of both kendo and judo. So I learned through him. I realized that human psychology was a part of that. And I became curious, what is the intersection between all these different arts and then what's the difference between let's say martial arts traditional martial arts and and then what i did in, in the marines in, you know in canahan combat stuff and and so i went further in terms of taking stuff out from each part i think bruce lee did that with jeet kune do he was also curious that's what he created because he says jeet kune do is basically an expression of ourselves we all have our own jeet kune do when we learn different martial arts what fits for us and what doesn't fit. So in the 80s, prior to me going into other businesses, I was teaching women self-defense. And I wanted to know what really worked. Does martial arts work in self-defense? It can, in a sense. But what it doesn't teach was a psychological aspect. So I was curious in terms of that, you know. But curiosity was a foundation. Like uh, you said, Benoit, curiosity, is a foundation for a lot of different things. Without that, uh, where would we be as human beings, right? The question that really comes to mind for me is, you know, with all of these different experiences explained, there's a big shift, as you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, around a singular focus on a career and then more of that multi-dimensional jack-of-all-trades. And to me, that's almost the most fascinating portion around all of these different experiences is that they're all you know, blending into the unique person that you are today. So how has taking this jack of all trades approach to life affected your life? I mean, I'm assuming it's very different than a lot of people in your, that you're peers with, that I worked the same job for 45 years and then had my 401k vest. You're going all over the place in all different life experiences, all different places. So how has that multidimensional approach to life impacted you? Yeah, so in my own case, gave me that sense of where I always have been and who I am as a human being. And I think mm -hmm. that is, is very important. But when I look at this uh, part of me, that when I look at like different things and exploring, it just connects to my inner being multifold. Then had I been stuck in a single career, I could not mm -hmm. imagine, for example, having a single career as a as a police officer i mean that that would have like completely devastated me and and as i talked to other people that had been stuck there friends of mine that end up retiring from the lapd i saw that the sense of who they are was lost and i was so happy that that i got out of that yes it, it was a good experience at, at that time and the same thing in the military but when you base your whole life purpose on a single venture in your life, a single job, a single career like a lot of people have, and when that's gone, especially people that serve in either first responder or military, when I see people exiting that, especially after 20, 30 years or more, they are completely lost they have like nothing they have no purpose nothing their lifespan dramatically decreases they don't have a sense of awe left in the world and i continue to have a sense of awe i look at things and and, and i get up you know i get to to wake up to this day i get to experience and what are new things that i can go out there and test out what can i learn new today so i so i have that sense where i have friends that are long gone they passed away because their blankness came in. One, one good friend that I, I served with, um, with the LAPD, uh, Larry. And Larry, 
he, he retired from the LAPD as a lieutenant. And then he went to the LA Unified School Police. He, he was hired as a deputy chief and he rose to chief of police there. And then he retired. Once he retired and I talked to him, he, he lives not too far away uh, up in the Santa Clarita Valley out here, uh, which is just north of San Fernando Valley. And he drives a tractor. He's a shell of the person that I once knew. I mean, we had so many good times back in, when I worked on West Valley area with him and, and our unit was um, 10847. He had already been with the LAPD uh, prior to me. Uh, he had like five years on me and everything. Again, he became a shell of the person. He, all he does, he's, he's out there, he drives a little tractor and, and, and that's his life. He has no sense of purpose anymore. He's deteriorated. Uh, he's become basically a, a little old man. And I never thought that he would be that way, but he's not alone. There's so many people like that. People that, that go their whole life in one career and their whole self-concept is based on that career. So they don't know really who they are on the inside. And I did not want to go that way. I've seen it too many times. I had this whole, I would say childlike view of the world and I, and I continue to do that. So I wanted to go out there and explore and find what really fit for me. Eventually I was able to narrow it down in terms of really looking at how we tick and everything like that and, and how things work. It took me a, a lot of different paths to really discover that, but I needed to experiment. I love to experiment. One important thing that, that I suggest to people, especially young people, is to experiment. Don't get stuck into just a single path. If you're, if, if you come out of college and you think, well, this is what I'm, what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. You know, I studied this and I, I got this degree. That's BS. D just like in a martial arts person who, who gets a black belt, think that's it. It's not, it's just an, a door that opens up to a world of possibilities to, to develop. And I don't look at age as a factor. I mean, I was all ready to go to medical school at one time a couple of years ago. So I wanted to try that out. But then that would have left me stuck for a number of years in terms of one thing, and, and that wasn't me. I was just keep more curious about it. And again, I continue to do this. If you're young, experiment. Don't ever get stuck in terms of one area. Don't ever become, this is my expertise, this is all I'm gonna do. And, and then you'll, you'll lose a sense of, of yourself and you'll lose a sense of, of awe of the world and, and you become more close-minded. And I've seen that the, the people who are only experts in one area tend to be more close-minded than a lot of others. So you know, open your mind to, to possibilities and that's what I have and that's my uh, continuing journey. Amen. That would like to definitely echo and put that message on a giant whiteboard, message board, and put it on a pedestal and to show it to the world. You glossed over so many intricate details. And of course, curiosity is a catalyst. It catalyzed your journey into the venturing, into the unknown. However, at the same time, the underlying decision-making is the pivoting part, right? And of course, you talked about, also before that, I just wanna highlight and take a pause. The fact that a couple years ago, so you were about 68, 67 years old, and you thought about the audaciousness, the audacity that you had to go into a medical school, which is one of the hardest and most rigorous institute in the world, period. That alone is a shocker. And of course, knowing your background and the couple of times we talked, I'm not surprised by that one bit, but that's insane. So including a medical school attempt until you realize, okay, I have to dedicate an X amount of years to derive any dividends from medical school journey to become an MD, or versus when you wanted to leave LAPD back in the 80s, uh, for about 40 years ago now, or when you served in the Marines Recon Special Force for eight years, every single chapter have served a particular purpose uh, in your journey and it helped refine who you are at this person that's ever expanding and ever evolving. So you're not stuck as a shell of a person that you described Larry as. But my question is, whenever you were at the intersection, at the crossroad of decision-making, 
when you pause and start reflecting, okay, Bob, is this the path I want to dedicate the next few years to? Or do I want to pivot into a new unknown, a new territory? What's some of the decision-making and self uh, pep talk you used to propel yourself forward, right? Because anytime we hear these stories about, oh, pivoting, good for you. Oh yeah, I pivoted this, I pivoted that, good for you. But most people don't understand the immense mental fuckery and mental battle and the monologue and the inner dialogue that you converse with your inner critic and all these societal expectations all come into play. Uh, so we would love for you to, since you are the master, the grandmaster of pivots through all your seven decades of lived experiences, we'll love to for you to instill some tangible tactics, your mindset for the listeners. Yeah, very, very good question. So when I decided to dedicate or, or commit myself in terms of a single path at the moment, I always ask myself, what is it that I'm going to be able to learn from what I already don't know? If this is what I want to do versus continuing looking at other opportunities. And, and by the way, I still do that even when I'm, I'm dedicating that one path because one of the things I learned is that you don't have to, like you get into something and I know that we're taught to complete it, but if you get into it and if it doesn't fit with who you are or because we don't know what we don't know until we, we start doing something. So one of the things I learned is that yeah, I can pivot out of it if it doesn't fit where, where my own sense of, of my purpose, my mission and everything. Initially, when I dedicate, yes, that will fit. But eventually it doesn't. I can recall going back to the 80s, I had that study. So I've gone to a lot of different schooling and everything like that. And then I went to University of West LA School of Law. I spent three and a half years there and it wasn't gonna be for me. I had one semester to go, just finishing it up and I would've got my JD. And people said, you wasted a lot of time. I said, no, I didn't. I learned some stuff there that I didn't know I learned about contract law, I learned about constitutional law, even more in terms of criminal law, what I didn't know as a police officer. So I was able to learn that stuff. And I didn't need to be a lawyer. In fact, I didn't want to dedicate my life to being a lawyer because it's very adversarial in terms of, of the industry. I know a lot of people, a lot of lawyers that have really a negative view of life, which is good. I wasn't that way. I would not have made a good attorney at all. So while I did dedicate, I pivoted out of that. I didn't finish up. So I just let it completely go. And, and I've done that with other things. I've completed a lot of different degrees in my life, but I found that it didn't fit who I was. So I never really utilized that. Um, I didn't want to be a clinical psychologist. I mean, after 2000 hours of clinical internship, I said, I don't want to get my license in this. I don't want to deal with schizophrenia and bipolar and, and severe mental disorder. For what? I like working and try to develop more of the healthy mindset and healthy brains and everything like that. And, and there's people that love doing clinical psychology. I'm going to let them handle that kind of stuff. So again, while I dedicated a certain portion of my time, I was able to pivot out. Again, it had a fit with, with who I was as a person my sense of purpose, that personal mission that I, I continue to put myself on. And that even shifts a little bit. Again, I think throughout my whole life, I've, I've looked at it from, from that point of view. I don't think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people get down and grit out their life. While grit is good in some cases, it can be overwhelming and it can stop a person from growing into who they really are. People are finally starting to realize that. I see this with Gen Zs. They're challenging this, the status quo of what their parents went through more than any other generation that I can remember. And, and I really applaud a lot of them for, for doing so, that they don't have to have a set path. They don't have to have their parents' path or anything like that. And I never wanted to go down my parents' path. I didn't want to be an engineer like my father. Uh, he was career army, but he was also electronics, aerospace engineer. I didn't want to, that wasn't my path. That would have bored me to heck. I'm analytical, yes, but I'm not like that way. That wasn't going to fit me. It's, it's like, you know, like the, the jet that will 
that has a mission going from, let's say, Los Angeles to, to New York City. Well, it's never a straight path, is it? It's always going back and forth. They're adjusting to various uh, winds coming across and, and different climate changes. All these different changes is completely adjusting, but it has a mission, it, its own purpose where it wants to get to. I tend to do the same thing. I have adopted like different mental models that help me, so I don't have to constantly think. So I let those mental models take care of it, like 80-20 rule. So I focus on 20% that's going to get me 80% of the results. I want to utilize my higher thinking so I can deep dive into something and, and study more. And once I have that, then I'll create new mental models that's going to help to keep me on, on that path. What is it teaching you? How are you growing from that by just staying that, that course? For some people, it'll be good, I guess. People that are generalists, I like to call them, will pass up the people that are experts because they will reach a certain thing, but then they're able to become more creative and they're able to see more things and, and bring things together. So it's just crazy when you can see this and how this connects to this, how you can actually create new possibilities in a world. And for me, that feels amazing. Not only possibility for myself, but really for the greater good and not being locked into one way of thinking. So I really love that. I think it's, I'm hearing almost a give and take between awareness and curiosity, right? Letting curiosity to pull you and then redefining what awareness looks like of that new context or that new situation. But really the push and pull of awareness and curiosity seems to be a bit of an undertone through all of the stories and experiences you've shared. And I think the idea that you just mentioned around mental models and learning is one that I'm especially fascinated with, especially, you know, all of your experiences considered my immediate thought is like, how could he possibly learn all of this stuff over a period of time? Like it's just a lot of knowledge objectively to gather from so many different um, schools of thought or subjects. Bring us through the models or approaches to learning that you may use. Like how do you learn best or even if trying to instruct people to improve their ability to learn. Say someone hears this podcast with you is inspired to make that pivot. Diving into a new subject is certainly daunting. I think that's a big reason why people do stay in a similar job for so long as it becomes repetitive and easy and they like know what they're expecting. Like change is difficult at the end of the day and there's the uncertainties behind it. So how do you either coach or teach people through that a, taking the leap, but even just learning such a new and complex subject, whether that's models, mindsets, or just approaches to learning. Yeah. So one thing I suggest is for myself, when I dive into, into something new and learning something new, what is it that I want? What is the outcome that I want from this? Does the outcome match my own personal mission? And that's very important. And as um, Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. So I begin with the end in mind on what I'm wanting to learn. Now I would analyze it. I would break it down into its components. So let's say I, I learn this, but what did it take for me to, to learn this? What did I have to, to understand about that outcome? What would be the fastest way for me to get to that outcome? Obviously in traditional education, it doesn't work. It, it teaches you a linear, so you start from here and then you go to this linear path. Then a lot gets lost on that. This is a path that I take with anything that I do. I, I go there with the beginner's mind. I want to know what is the foundational stuff that I need to really get right that everything else, else is built up on. And that's what I would do. I would really focus on the foundational stuff. So once I got the foundational stuff, everything else came in easy. Once I understood that, for example, I learned Aikido. I learned Aikido like really fast. You know how long it took me to learn everything about Aikido? A weekend, wow. period. Mm -hmm. Because Aikido is very simple. It's all circular movements. You have three wheels in a sense. You have this giant wheel, like, you know, turning like this, so you can turn people like this or, or like this. And then you just had a, a small wheel. So like doing, like this, this is a small wheel, like this. When you're doing large and tossing, this is a large wheel. And then you have this wheel like up here like this. So this is just three wheels. 
So once you understand that concept, once you, you break it down, you'll look at Aikido in, in a much different way. So it's not about all the complexity and everything like that. It's just using wills, you know, just turning things. I wouldn't consider myself a master, but I really understood it when I rose to a level of expertise in, in a single weekend. And again, it's breaking it down to the simple components like that, that a lot of people don't understand. You know, even in, in something as supposedly complex as calculus. Calculus is nothing but change of motion. I mean, if, if you understood those two concepts, then you'll, you'll really understand calculus or anything else. There's always simple explanation. I think we tend to make things too complicated when we look at like certain things and a lot of experts will overcomplicate it. It's really understanding the simplicity as Richard Feynman talks about things like bringing it down to its components. I, I like his explanation on heat, just fast moving molecules. That's it. You're speeding up molecules. But everything is simple. You just have to go down and find the fundamentals of, of each thing that, that you're learning to, to study. Yeah, your ability to simplify complexity into simple terms in turn enables you to accelerate the learning process. And of course, you talked about Josh and we would strongly recommend his book, The Art of Learning. A great book and he talks about how your reverse engineering from the end of mind they alluded to into um, like how you can break down complex process into simple terms so you can almost replicate your learning process into different fortes or fields that are seemingly unrelated. And also I just wanna for the people that's listening since this is an audio only platform, Bob has a whiteboard right behind him that says say no. I can't quite read the full message. And because I bring that up because your most recent story right now versus the previous story, I think the bridge between both stories are about the art of saying no, right? Because the way I look at your story is yes, you went through a lot of different fields. You have many, many expertise. And of course, your ever-expanding curiosity are the main components to your success. But in addition to that, you not only said yes, you said yes to many different opportunities and many different possibilities. Because like you said, you don't know what you don't know until you try it. But at the same time, the underlying decision that went through is your ability to say no. You said no to a lot of the lanes you embarked on, but you didn't get caught up in the song cost. You didn't get caught up in, oh... I spent X amount of money, I spent X amount of time, I spent X amount of resources, so I owe it to myself, or I owe it to the world, or my parents, or whatever instilled external beliefs to finish the process. But you're like, no, I'm going to say no, not to the others, but I'm going to say no to myself. Because for you, at least, opportunity cost of learning and expanding your horizon outweighs the song cost of being stuck in a lane, as you alluded to. So with that being said, um, the art of saying no, I think, is becoming ever more prevalent. I love to zoom in on the key components, which is your ability to say no, in addition to saying yes. And because you have say no, the part that I could see on your whiteboard right behind your screen, um, would love for you to talk about some tangible tactics, right? And once again, I know you talked about, uh, in answering Aiden's question is, how do you address and confront that dauntingness the feeling of daunting when you're entering the new field and you came down to identify the core components the principles and then you reverse the outcome into how can i simplify the seemingly complexity that's a very effective way to address the dauntingness because now it's a lot more simple right but that aside when you realize that your path no longer serve you how do you say no i'm a heavy duty reader i read a lot of books but a lot of times I'll get to the book and I would tell myself, this book just no longer serves me in terms of the direction I want to go. Why do I have the compelling need to complete it? One of the things about human nature is that we like to complete things. And, and because of this, this stops us from being able to, to grow into the direction that, that we need to go. In my background in terms of um, doing direct response marketing and, and understanding the nature of that and, and how people can get influenced in certain things. So there was this company called Franklin Mint years ago. I think they may still be around. I'm not sure. 
they understood this about human nature. So they would, um, for example, one of the things that they sold was this chess, this chess set. And you would buy a piece a month and you pay like so much money. So you get like the first piece for, for free or very low cost. And then they would give you this free box, which housed all the pieces, like very, very beautiful box, um, velvet line kind of box, right? They knew that people hate to have open spaces. So once they, they bought that and they bought a few pieces and then they looked at this box, they have to complete the box. They have to fill in every single space. The same thing like a puzzle. I mean, people have like played a puzzle and then all of a sudden they can't find that missing piece and it drives them crazy all the time. Completing a book, same thing. People have an innate thing of wanting to complete a book. And I ask myself again, curiosity, why? Why do I have to complete something when it didn't make any sense for me to complete it? It didn't make sense to me. So going back to, to books, I've read so many books, but there's a lot of books I would just go through a few chapters and I said, nah, I put it away. Maybe I can come back to, to it another day if it's necessary, but it was never necessary. Didn't make sense to me. So I would go and, and find a books that made more sense. If I got what I wanted out of the book, that's all I needed, period. I don't have to complete this. I don't have to do this. Why? I'm the only one that, that's telling me that I have to complete, complete doing this. Hmm. So I also have the ability to say no. I've been presented with a lot of opportunities. And, and the thing is, does that opportunity fit with my personal mission? You know, it could be a huge opportunity. You know, it could be a multi-million dollar opportunity in terms of the finances. But doesn't fit with me. I say no. And I learned this from the mistakes that I did early on in my life by saying yes to, to the wrong things that didn't fit. So my suggestion is, um, again, if it doesn't fit with where you want to go, say no. If you're being asked to being promoted, but you may end up going into a position that you're going to hate when you feel much better in terms of doing something that, that's right for you, then then absolutely say no. You don't want to get into something and go into your whole life just because of an opportunity where you may think is, is a good opportunity ends up being a bad opportunity. It's just going to drive you really bonkers. Your, your, your health's going to decline and so much more. So it's really imperative for your overall being. And you need to read your body, even have that gut feeling that, you know, oh gosh, you know, I don't know if, if I should do this or not. My gut's saying one thing, but my other people are, you know, saying you should do this. And now you're getting all this outside pressure. You need to go with what feels right for you and just say no. <laughs> say no. Use that. Bring it up. And on the other hand, you say yes to, to the stuff that's, that's going to work best for you, what works for you. You can experiment now. So you can use it as, okay, I'm going to test this out as an experiment. So you can become your own scientist for yourself in that way, but just only experiment. But you don't need to go all in on that. So you just be an experimental. I, I, I love experimenting. I like testing things out on myself to see, see how it works. Because sometimes, you know, what I thought wasn't good turned out to be better than what I thought because I didn't really fully grasp that thing. But again, I continue again adjusting. So that's my take on that. Nice. Yeah, I love that response. I think Ben Ma and I are equally so a fan of intuitive movement, really kind of like leaning into that gut feeling and seeing what feels like the right next step. Um, and I think that really is evident from the stories that you just shared. Do you have any specific examples or stories, perhaps, from your wide-ranging experience of a time where you followed your intuition that you say said no to a opportunity that maybe the world around you was telling you to go for that it would be a good opportunity but you had that intuitive voice that made you make a decision yes or no um, I think it's equally fascinating for us and as well as the listeners to listen to us 
talking through, you know, intuitive movement, a lot of these like higher level subjects. But I think having a story that really shows the power of saying no when the world says yes might be helpful as an example. I actually have several examples. And I'm going to start with one that I didn't think fit me at the time. I'm going back to high school. So we had this thing called Junior Achievement. Those of you who don't know what Junior Achievement is, this is where they get mentors from the outside in the, in the business world, and they come in and they teach you about business. So I did it for two years in high school. Initially, I didn't think it was going to be anything because it's going to, it was going to take some of my time outside of what I normally did in terms of like me, like going to working at a job or something like that during the time that I was doing it at the Junior Achievement Club. But I decided to go ahead and jump into it. So the first year I did it, I learned a lot in terms of the business aspects and everything and getting the insight from these uh, mentors who were actually managers in, in local corporations. So they taught me about business planning and managing and, and developing products and all this kind of stuff. So we ended up developing a product. My second year, because I had this experience and everything like that, and I was able to guide some of the people. I was elected president of, of that club because of my curiosity. I said, let's create something that other people have more, were not creating. We ended up um, creating a product that was an alternative to a traditional dartboard. It's like one of the first ones out there. We actually took a, a velvet dartboard kind of thing and took ping pong balls and this new thing called Velcro. It's brand new and attached it to this and started making these, these tossing things onto the dartboard. And it sold really, really, really well. We sold out our whole stock. So I learned a lot about what it's like to, to lead a company and anything like that. So that was something that initially I said no to, but it was, it was something that, that helped to set me on a path to learn more about leading. It taught me more about leadership in terms of that way. So I got something good out of something where initially I was going to say no, eventually I said yes too. On the other hand, I said yes to something when I should have said no. This was, um, I was involved in a company doing a thing called land banking, and I did this on the side. I learned a lot in terms of that. I ended up having to get my Series, um, um, series 7 and Series 63 license as part of that, plus my real estate license. So I did all that, which was okay. But this company turned out later to be one of these scam companies. Founder, um, so some of the people we got in terms of the investments, and I should have questioned more on that, and, and I didn't. And the, the company ended up ripping a lot of people off in terms of these investments and everything in term, doing um, real estate investments. And that's something I probably should have said no to, and also question more and challenge people more because that was part of my nature was challenging everything like that, which I did not do at that time. That's something I should have said no to, where I said no to something where I probably should have said yes to, but that was like a, a fine line. When I was running my advertising and marketing firm, um, there was this young man who came in and wanted help for his new company. He was starting and it was uh, an internet company. And I can't re recall the name. It turned out to be a multi-billion dollar company, and I was going to get 25% ownership of it had I gotten involved. And I said no to it. You know, I, I thought he was too young. He was in his early 20s, which was like my bias at that time. And, and it was stupid. And his name was Sky Dayton. And he had been in sales and all this kind of stuff uh, prior to st him starting uh, this company. And I, I said no to that when I probably should have said yes and that was another example that where I could have been worth at least hundreds of millions of dollars that kind of thing but again you know we we have opportunities that, that come and go and a final thing is that uh, let me think about something that I said no to that was actually good more recently so I've been getting a lot of opportunities to, to get involved in some international organizations and everything like that. I ended up saying no to most of them because it was going to take me away from my personal mission. Despite 
the opportunities and everything like that. So I went back to, to that. And, and these are like organizations out of India, out of the Middle East, out of um, Africa, and even out of Europe that I said no to because it didn't fit with where I'm at now and where I wanted to go. And they were like heavily wanting me to be part of it. So I said, no, I, I can't do this. And I felt much better, you know, instead of like this pressure. I think when we're trying to make decisions, and I know that we all feel this, and and should I take this, and, and these people are like really offering me this and this and this and this, I had to learn to, to say no to all those kind of things. Again, I needed like what's going to be those kind of things that's going to make me really float up and, and grow instead of like, okay, if I get involved in this, you know, I'm going to start doing stuff. Now, while pressure is good in some circumstances, because sometimes pressure helps us to grow, I think the wrong pressure does just the opposite. And, and I could sense that it was going to be the wrong pressure. It was going to take me away from where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So nowadays, I think it's a lot easier for me to say no to, to more things. Because again, I, I learned throughout my life and learn from all the mistakes and learning from the mistakes of others. Going back to back to when I was going to have my advertising marketing firm and I was involved in, in nonprofit organizations as well. And one of the nonprofits, one of my fellow board members on this educational foundation, she um, was one of these um, women that could not say no. No was not in her vocabulary. She always said yes whenever, whenever somebody asked her, Will you do this? Her name was on Rose, and Rose always said yes. She won this um, award in her area, first ever was called Athena Award, because she did so much. She gave so much to the community, and she was running two businesses at that time. One of them was a State Farm Insurance Company, and then she had another business as well. Plus, she was on a board of multiple nonprofit organizations. And she was asked to run for city council, and she said yes to that. So it was just, it just did not make sense to me. Well, she got so overloaded that she went into her bathroom and she ended up taking a, a handgun and killing herself. Jesus. And she could not handle, she could not say no. So that taught me a, a big lesson and one of the reasons I tell people to say no more often than saying yes is because you don't want it to overwhelm you. And I got to that point and I was, I learned to say no more often. Most of the time, the no side far outweighs the yes side in terms of that. So, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your former board member and friend Rose for taking her own life. And I do think that that really provides an important discussion right because especially with the pandemic and the unspoken untalked about silos mental health pandemic that follows soon after obviously the uh, you're a veteran i'm a veteran myself so both of us are very hyper intentional and hyper passionate about the mental health the suicide prevention and everything in between so i don't know how many times i'm going to mention steve jobs throughout this episode (laughs) maybe we can make accounts but everything you said hits on everything that made Steve Jobs the person that he is, is a lot of times people say, oh, Steve Jobs was great, aside from all the great things we discussed earlier in the episode, is that, oh yeah, he knew when to say yes. But if you look at throughout his biography and his interviews over the decades, he's prouder, he's more proud of the fact that his ability to say no to thousands of projects so that he has the ability to eliminate decision-making, period and zone in and focus on the three, four areas that he really want to become the best at. And those three, four areas that he was hyper-focused about became the shining lights, became the landmark that made Steve Jobs the Steve Jobs that we know. So I do really think the ability and the art of saying no at times, based on your circumstances, based on the context of the discussion, really do outweigh the art of saying yes, which is the intention of me posing this question to you so yeah so with that being said i think i would be remiss if i don't ask you about your personal statements right because i think there's a lot of fluff in this world especially with the rise of social media 
And I think platforms like podcasts is becoming ever more prevalent and important because it's no longer just the chopped bits of the highlight reels or we're straying away from the headline culture. Rather, we're dedicating three to four hours into one conversations with the intention and curiosity and really dive deep into different layers as possible. So yeah, so with that being said, I do think that without your alignment with your personal mission, which is what ultimately allowed you to say no to all these um, superficial opportunities that seems attractive at times based on financial incentives or what the world is telling you, right? The echo chamber, but rather you're like, no, because it's unaligned or in alignment with my personal statements. So Bob, I like to take this opportunity to ask you for my personal curiosity that what is your current personal statements that allowed you to say no to the most recent international involvement into this organization in India, in Europe, in Middle East. And of course, I do understand and acknowledge that your personal mission is ever evolving, right? But currently speaking in this very sacred space, uh, what is your most recent and concurrent personal mission that you're so committed to? Yeah, so currently my personal mission is how can I take what I have and deliver it in such a way that's going to be the, the highest and best good so that people can transform to the highest and best self. How can I transfer what I know into others so that now they become the teachers? Do these other opportunities allow me to do that or don't they? And nine times out of, out of 10, it became a no for me for these other opportunities. I like to look at that old adage, if you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to teach others how to fish, then you feed the whole world. That's where I'm at now. I like to use that part as my personal mission in terms of teaching others. I think part of that was one of the reasons I decided to go from becoming an NLP trainer to becoming an NLP master trainer. So as a master trainer, I can teach other trainers how to teach others how to use the principles of NLP so they can go out there and do that. And that's just one part of that. So. I'm at that point in my life, and my mission is to go out and deliver it that way. So most opportunities just don't fit in terms of what I do. It's wasting my time, and and, I, and it's wasting their time. And, you know, I decided to let them know. That's a beautiful mission. I really resonate with the analogy that you gave about teaching a man to then teach others to fish. I think that's just such a profound example around really the potential of that like ever expanding web of one person teaching another person who then teaches more. It just really, uh, you know, makes you think about the potential of teaching one person a new set of skills, a new mindset, or just a new approach to life. And for me, with that example in mind, the idea of transformation really comes up. I think you mentioned it kind of at the beginning of that mission of facilitating other people's transformation. But I was wondering if you could walk us through how you think about the process of transformation, maybe like the big components of what transformation looks like, how it showed up in your own life or even the lives of people that you've worked with. Regarding transformation, because everybody has their own um, idea of where they want to go and what is it that they want to do in terms of their personal transformation. I tend to start the inner being I think that's really important for the person to be able to, to really understand themselves and for their truest self to come out, not the layers or where they think that they should be based on other expectations. So I have to learn or teach them, should I say, to get rid of those expectations of others. I have to break that down, then have them going inside to their purest self, the self that they were born with. I think the transformation always starts there instead of where they think they're going to go, but they're wearing a mask that's covering it up. Have you ever heard the story of the Golden Buddha? No. Okay, so let me tell you that story. So back in May of 1954, this is in Bangkok, Thailand, one of the largest um, They actually had this, this temple uh, of the Golden Buddha. So at that time, there's this huge clay Buddha. They were doing some renovation there. So they ended up having, they had to move the Buddha and they had this one monk in charge 
And as during this movement and everything like that, a crack formed in, in a Buddha. So that scared a monk. You know, this clay Buddha had been there for centuries. So he went to get one of the other um, monks and they shone some light and they saw something through the crack and it just shined through. They uncovered so it's clay and plaster around a solid gold Buddha. Now, this is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the single largest piece of gold. So it's like 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, and weighs 15 tons. That's huge. Now, what had happened was that centuries before, they would have warring armies that would come into Thailand, and they would like pillage and take anything of value. So ahead of, of a warring army coming in, the, the monks at that time, they wanted to protect their golden Buddha, so they covered it with um, plaster and clay to protect it. So when these warring armies came in and they, they asked if you had anything about it, the monks said, no, so they killed all the monks. And then they left. So they got a new monks later on that didn't know that there was a golden Buddha there. So they prayed to this large clay Buddha for centuries and centuries and centuries until that fateful day in 1954. Hmm. And the reason I tell a story is that each one of us come into this world like that golden Buddha. You, me, we all have that golden self. The problem is that our society, our well-meaning caregivers and others want to protect us. And, and then we protect ourselves in the same way. And then we lose the innate ability for curiosity because we hear the thing of curiosity killed the cat. So you're not supposed to be curious because parents will say that, that thing, you don't want to be curious anymore. Just follow along with this program. But all this kind of stuff they thought was meant to protect you. But actually, they put this plaster cast and it covered with clay. And then we do our, our, ourselves as we get older. We start covering more and more and more and more from everything that we hear. We go into this protective mode and we forget who we are. So transformation actually really starts back by uncovering that kind of stuff to get back to who we are. So when I help somebody to transform, I need to start there, find that golden Buddha, and then shine it up so they can now glow and glow and, and become who they were meant to be instead of what society and others told them that they should be. And then what we even expanded on what society told us what we should be instead of our pure self. Now, there's a few select individuals that have been able to come up and, and to, to grow from that. Ben, while you, you mentioned Steve Jobs, he's he, he kept that, that golden self and a few people have. But for the majority of people, including um, CEOs of organizations that I've worked with, they're covered with that clay. They're, they're wearing this mask. And sometimes that exposure, and as Carl Jung talks about the shadow self, will sometimes come out and express itself because it's wanting to come out. Our golden self wants to come out. It'll shine through, you know, the crack may form, but then you'll cover up that crack with some, some plaster or something like that. You don't want it to shine. You may be scared of what's underneath that. So that transformation, it's about breaking apart that and removing all that so that each one of us can come out and shine. I went through that as well. You know, I was probably a very expressive kid, but the, you know, I, was, I went through a lot of um, situations. My father used to beat me. and My first broken nose was as a toddler for my father. And so I went through all that. I've been a lifelong stutter. You don't notice it now, but then I had to like uncover all this, this kind of stuff to have that expression coming out and express my curiosity in a much, much bigger way. So maybe like, you know, my age now, I'm, I'm back to being four and five years old and just getting out there and having fun and on this golden bob just going around and doing stuff, so. That's actually probably one of the best responses we've heard on air. And your exceptional ability to make any advice, not just tangible and relevant, but you also support it with extremely you know, attractive and captivating stories. Because I'm sure you know this better than anyone as a you know, speaker, as an author, as a master trainer, as a master coach, and all the other identities as far in between. You understand that facts and stats and quote unquote wisdom are meaningless without having stories and without having to capture whoever's listening on the other side. 
right? Because that's what communication is. And I think that's what transformation is for you. Before I even talk about the outcome, before I even talk about what sort of transformational state you want to help mold your students and your clients into, you first start from where it matters the most. Just like how you use story as a centerpiece to deliver these wisdom, you don't focus on the wisdom, you focus on story. Likewise, you focus on the golden Buddha, the inner self, the true self, before you worry about breaking down their false sense of self or worry about building weak infrastructure on top of their false sense of self, right? So I think your ability to approach problem solving is probably in tension with your analytical thinking ability and just you as a person and how dedicated you are and your conviction is very obvious. Uh, on that note, I wanna take a slight pivot, uh, not quite about your personal life, um, but just I think it kind of fits into what we talked about is once you realized, oh, once the plastic, once the shell of clay falls apart, then the golden Buddha truly shines. And it's like the idea of going from self-perceived impossibility to possibility, right? So the first thing that came to my mind is Olympics. And the reason why I bring that up is because you talked about this before we started recording, is once you start doing something and once you realize it's possible, the rest is history. But it's the first breaking barrier of the impossibility so difficult. So during our off mic, I wrote this down. What's your story of Golden Buddha uncovering your true self and then all these unforeseeable endless possibilities that unfold after that reminds me of uh, with olympics or any other world-class competition or sports or with parkour that you're so passionate about and we'll definitely touch on that later it's like the idea that once someone like an athlete right breaks a world record like back in the 1950s when i forgot his name robert he's the first person to run uh, i think 100 meters in under 10 seconds before that he's from britain before that no nobody thought that was possible but then the year after he broke that record, I think five or six people were able to break the barrier immediately. So it's like the idea that once someone breaks a world record or what is seemingly perceived as impossible and redefine that impossibility, I think someone else, another great athlete, is immediately able to surpass that self-perceived limit. And so, of course, I think that's sort of that touches on flow state elements. But what are your thoughts on that in terms of breaking these perceived or these externally set limits on ourselves i think it it's an extension of your golden buddha story and your message so, so it's interesting now you're talking about breaking the, the four minute mile and by the way i mentioned 1954 with the golden buddha correct yes so, so roger bannister he actually in 1954 broke the four minute mile when physiologists and all the experts said it was impossible they said that the human physiology was not meant to to go past four minutes. That's the reason people come close, but they couldn't get it. But they didn't realize it wasn't a physiological challenge. It was a mental challenge. And Roger Bannister, he didn't think about when he was running about breaking a four minute mile. He got into, in essence, that flow state. He just went at it. He felt it and everything like that. And then he ended up just barely, I believe it was, um, three minutes, 59.4 seconds that he, he broke the four minute mile. So once he broke through a psychological barrier, just a few months later, other athletes started breaking the four minute mile. And, and it was pretty amazing when, when, when you think about that, it's really never about the physical level. In fact, I worked with an athlete going back to the hundred meters that kind of um, brought on that. I worked with one guy, he was a master level 100 meter. So just like people, I would believe it's like he was 45 years old and he was in phenomenal shape. First 50 to 75 meters, he would always be out in front, but he hit a barrier and the barrier started at the 50 meter mark. He ended up starting out first and ended up last. He just could not get past, it was a mental barrier. So I worked with him using hypnosis and NLP and some other stuff and, and got him into the, a flow state. So once he got into that, he got out of his own mind and not focused on winning, he just did his best. Once he did that, he started winning. He started winning and one meet, he came within 
one one hundredth of a second off the world record for his age class because he broke through a mental barrier, not a physical barrier. And it was all about that. We have all these these barriers that we put up into our life. While there are physical barriers, I mean, I'm not going to be Superman and run into a concrete wall and knock it down. That's freaking insane. I'm not going to be able to jump out of a plane without a parachute or a jetpack or something like that and, and expect to, to fly like Superman, right? So there are limits on what I can do, yet most of the limits that we place on ourselves are mental limits. So once we understand that, once we understand that we are hurting ourselves and are hurting ourselves to be able to move forward. So when we look at Olympians and, and we look at the ones that are able to continue to challenge themselves, but they're challenging themselves, they're not going up against the competition in that sense. So Krauser, who's the American, he's actually the world champion and the world record holder in a shot put. I, I remember back in the Olympic trials, when he set the world record, so the Olympic trials for, for the 2020 games, he didn't just set the world record, he smashed the world record. It's a record that had been held for decades and he finally broke through. And I noticed when he did it, he felt it. He was actually in a state of flow. He felt it. He didn't have the expectation. He didn't like say, I'm going to break the world record. He felt just that explosion. And then recently he, at the Olympic games in Tokyo, in his first throw, he felt each throw, each progressive throw. He broke the Olympic record in his first throw. Second throw, he broke his own record. He just did a previous throw. And then his final throw, he smashed the Olympic record and came just very close with the second furthest throw ever in a shot put of breaking the, the world record. He came so close to that. This is something that we've never seen in a single sport of, of Olympic record being broke, boom, 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 one right after another. Because he was absolutely in his game. He wasn't focused on the other competitors. He wasn't focused on the gold medal. He just focused on being the best that he could be, and he proved that out. And I look at other athletes who have completely self-destructed. I remember watching John McEnroe. He was a famous tennis player um, at one time. And this guy was always in his own head, and he blamed other people. He didn't accept responsibility. He went from being a person that could have been one of the greatest of all time because his talent was there. His skill set was there. But his mindset was not there, and he self-destructed time and time and time again by blaming outside circumstances. He was always him against other people. It was all always about that instead of him focusing on how can I continue to improve and, and become the best that I can possibly be. And that's the mindset that the most elite athletes will continue to do versus the ones that self-destruct eventually. So when we can become the best that we can be, I said earlier, challenge ourselves to be better than what we were the day before, then you will continue to grow. But again, it's not about you against other people. It's about you against yourself. And that's what the greatest Olympians of all time have been able to do. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.